Bible, why don't you open it to John chapter 17. We are carrying on in our, our sermon series on John's gospel. Four years in, three quarters of the way in. Home stretch, everybody. This is, this is great. And, uh, and we're going to be looking at a few verses there. Uh, as you turn to John 17, if you have a Bible or an app, those kinds of things, uh, we have Bibles out in the foyer that you can grab as well if you'd like to use one of those. You're welcome to it. Um, I, uh, if you haven't seen my face for a while, it's not because I don't love you, but because I haven't been here. So uh, I've spent the last four weeks almost now, just uh, took some holidays, and then the elders uh, really blessed me with a couple weeks of refreshment, uh, time not to come into the office, but to uh, just spend time in prayer and with Jesus and uh, working on uh, some sort of vision things, and, and I'm just really grateful for that time and really have been eager to get back to be with all of you. So thank you. Um, just to get you up to speed, uh, what we're talking about this morning, where we're at here in God's Word, um, <clears throat> Jesus' earthly ministry is really coming to a close. All of John chapter 17 is a prayer of Jesus, often referred to as the high priestly prayer. The entire chapter is a prayer of Jesus. But, but just in terms of timing, I want you to know that, that right after this, Jesus is going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's, he's going to be betrayed by uh, one of his disciples, a disciple named Judas. That happens directly after this prayer. The very next day, he will be crucified. So in John chapter 17, Jesus is praying this wonderful prayer for his disciples. Um, later that day, he will be um, betrayed and tried. And in chapter 19, he will be crucified. Last week, really the key verse of the passage last week, that, that, that main emphasis of it is, we can find it in verse 15, where Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them, that's his disciples, out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That was the, the real emphasis in last week's passage, the, the, the verses just preceding our text this morning. Meaning what, what Jesus is praying here is, Jesus' prayer is that God should keep them from the polluting influence of the world, especially the evil one. So where the prayer, the emphasis of the part of the prayer last week was keep them, Father. The emphasis of the prayer this week and in, in the following verses is sanctify them. So I'm going to read from uh, John 17, verses 17 through 19, our text this morning. It'll also be on the screen. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. The outline for the message this morning will be as follows. We will talk about the meaning of sanctification. It's the theological word of the day. You get a thousand points for this one. Sanctification. Uh, sanctification, we're going to define it first, the meaning of sanctification. Then we're going to talk about the means of sanctification. Then thirdly, the purpose of sanctification. What's it for? Why sanctification? And finally, the necessity of the cross for our sanctification. Uh, firstly, the meaning of sanctification. The word sanctify has uh, two main senses. The first is most emphasized in the Bible. This is where we see the word sanctified used most. It's emphasized in the Bible, meaning to set apart for God and for God's service. Something that is sanctified is something that is set apart. 
The word sanctify is not only used of people in the Bible, but of anything set apart for special function and purpose. There was a room in my house growing up as a kid that was sanctified. It was the dining room. And by the dining room, I mean it was like the really nice table and uh, the hutch with the china in it that was there that was separate from like the grungy kitchen table where we did most of our eating, right? And, and on a Sunday, if the timer on the oven worked properly and the roast actually roasted, we would have that in the dining room on the china, right? Because that was the sanctified room that was set apart for the special Sunday dinner. In my Bible reading, I've been uh, in uh, the latter chapters of Exodus lately, and we can see all kinds of things set apart for God's use. Uh, uh, we'll put it on the screen. Exodus 40, verse 9 says, Then you shall take the anointing oil. This is about um, the tabernacle, the sacrificial system for Israel at that time. You shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it, and consecrate it and all its furniture, so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils. Utensils can be sanctified. And consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons, the priests, to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments. These also garments can be consecrated sanctified, and you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. In this, in this little passage here, we see some things that are set apart for holy use, for God's use, a tabernacle, a furniture, altar, utensils, garments, and priests set apart and devoted entirely to God and his use. That's the first sense of the word to sanctify. The second sense has not only to do with being set apart as holy, but of being made holy. Perhaps when you think of sanctification, if you know the word and you know the meaning, perhaps you're more familiar with this. It's the being made holy. This sense has to do with God doing a work within us of purging us, purifying us, and cleansing us, of being conformed more and more in likeness to Christ. So to be sanctified, one, is to be set apart for God's use, God's purposes. And another is to become more Christ-like. And they go hand in hand. This is a progressive work of becoming more like Christ. I uh, was talking with a friend of mine who's exploring faith in Jesus. We were chatting a few weeks ago, and he looked at me. He's like, yeah, I don't know. I'm just, I'm stuck on this Christianity thing. Like, I... I think I want to become a Christian, but Matt, I look at you and like, you're really good and I'm not good. And I'm like, hold on. I guess we're not that good of friends that you don't know me very well for starters. Um, secondly, you don't need to worry about how good you need to be to become a Christian. And at that point, we started to talk about two uh, different but connected things, two parts of uh, the work of salvation, of justification and sanctification. And I talked about the fact that this word justification, what it means is that when you give your life to Jesus, you are justified. In that moment, you are made right with God, right then and there. That if God looks in at your life, though you have sinned, though you have fallen short, though you have done things wrong, he will look in at the spotless and see the spotless record of Jesus Christ. Because that's what it means to accept Jesus and to follow him. You are justified in that instant. But at that moment of conversion, we're also in the beginnings of sanctification. We become a, 
a person set apart for his service, set apart for his ways, his will. And, and over the span of our lifetimes, we will become more and more made into the image of Christ, into Christ-likeness. And that will take our entire life, so much so that when we die, we have not been yet sanctified enough. We're going to need to be glorified, too. We're just going to need to be just perfectly set aright with God so that we can be in his presence forever. When I was in elementary school, one of my best friends, his name was Chris, and he, had a, he lived on an acreage and had a little dirt bike. And I didn't have a dirt bike. And so every time I went to his house, I wanted to ride his dirt bike because I was like the coolest thing. He rode his dirt bike all the time, so he didn't really care that much. He's like, do you want to play Frisbee? I'm like, Frisbee? I want to ride your dirt bike. Like, what are you talking about, right? Because he's like, all right. And we would just take turns on his dirt bike driving around his acreage. Well, when you're a kid in elementary school and you're just learning these things, the whole throttle and clutch you know, balancing act is you're, you're learning that. You're getting the feel for that. And I used a lot of throttle and a really, you know, quick hand on the clutch. And uh, it, it began to do a wheelie, which turned into falling over on top of me. And the next day at school, Chris came up to me and he said, my dad says you can't ride my dirt bike anymore. It's like, ah. Oh. Grade four was hard. Grade four was hard. That was, that was a tough, that was tough to hear. Uh, many years later, a few years ago, I got my motorcycle license and, uh, because I thought, you know what? My family doesn't need me right now. Uh, doesn't need me. No, not true at all. That's why I don't ride anymore is we have little kids and I should be a help in that and be here. So, uh, but I got my motorcycle license, got through with that, and, and in my mind all the time was like, easy on the clutch, <laughs> take it easy on the throttle. I never had that experience again because I was, I was figuring it out and I was learning, I was getting better at it. So it is with sanctification. It's progressive, right? Over the span of our lives. Look, today, if you give your life to Christ, you're still going to be a mess. I hate to break it to you, but 10 years from now, God will be, have done work in your heart in a myriad of ways and grown you more into the image of Christ. And 10 years after that, wouldn't you know? More into the image and likeness of Christ, more like him. So these are the two senses of sanctification that we see. Now, here's the question. Which sense of sanctify is meant here when Jesus prays, sanctify them? Well, I think you're going to see in, in, in the way that we unpack this in the following verses that, that Jesus clearly means both. Jesus means that when he's praying that his people be sanctified, that his disciples be sanctified, what he's saying, set them apart and set them apart for a purpose and for them to become more like me, um, that's going to serve this sanctifying purpose I have for them. It's all intertwined. It's both. So let's look at the means then of sanctification and that's going to become more and more clear for us what I mean. The means or the method of sanctification, verse 17 tells us, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. What a verse. Okay, so we need to be set apart as followers of Jesus. He, he sets us apart and he makes us more Christ. Like how? How? How does that happen? In the truth. Your word is truth. When I was 19 years old, I was living in Calgary, uh, grown up in the church, went to a Christian high school, did a year of Bible school, um, then had my uh, rebellious phase, I guess, in, 
uh, living in Calgary and just not really living for the Lord. But at a certain point over the span of those couple of years, God really grabbed a hold of my heart in a way that I had never experienced before, where I actually began to read my Bible for myself. Like I had grown up in the church and I heard the preacher say it. I, I'd gone to Sunday schools and camps and heard people say the word. I had never really in my life studied the word of God, given myself to reading the word. How does one be sanctified, become more Christ-like? In the truth. And the word of God is truth. That was revolutionary in my walk with the Lord. And notice what Jesus says here, your word is truth. Now, you would think that the, that the noun wouldn't be used there like that. You would think it would say, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is true. It doesn't say that. It says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Meaning, it's the standard by which everything else is measured against. Because it's truth. There's a big difference between a true thing and the truth. And the word of God is truth. So, when you're wondering, is this statement this person is saying, is this statement true? Well, let me test it with God's word. Is that philosophy of life I'm hearing over here, is that accurate? Well, let me test that with the word of truth, God's word. Is that truth claim correct over here? Let me test it with God's word. That is the way in which we are sanctified. We are sanctified in the truth. We sang, uh, the second song we sang this morning was a kind of a modern uh, song um, to, the, to, to the words, the lyrics of the Apostles' Creed. This was kind of already set by the fourth century and it, through the centuries of the church. The Apostles' Creed has been a great help um, and has been read uh, just a myriad of times. Uh, it contains a brief summary of the great doctrines of the Christian faith as uh, clearly articulated in God's word, in the Bible. Here's what the Apostle Creed, how it reads. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, meaning the true Christian church of all times and places, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. What a creed. A creed, words of doctrine um, pulled from the very words of Scripture that can be trusted as truth because they are set, they, they really come from the Word of God. I came across a few days ago a, a cheeky modern version of the Apostles' Creed called the Apostates' Creed. Not lending itself to the Word of God as so much lending itself to the winds of doctrine of our day. Listen to the Apostates' Creed, will you? I often believe in God, the life force friendly observer of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, our good example, who might have been conceived by the Holy Spirit, if you go for that sort of thing, born of the Virgin Mary, victimized by the government, 
was crucified, died, and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again, maybe just spiritually in the hearts of his followers. We're not sure. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come, but not to judge anybody because judging is bad. I believe in sending good thoughts. The Holy Catholic pluralism, the communion of mankind, the redefinition of sins, the supremacy of the body, and that somehow everybody makes it except Hitler and Donald Trump. Amen. <laughs> I said it was cheeky. I read this to you because it sets these cultural doctrines against the great biblical doctrines. And truth stands in the balance. What'll it be? What is truth? Ray Stedman in his commentary on the exposition of John 13 to 17 called Secrets of the Spirit wrote, the world lives by what it thinks is truth, by values and standards which are worthless, but which the world esteems highly. He goes on to say, Jesus said, what is exalted among men is an abomination to the sight of God, Luke 16, 15. That is how the world lives, he said. And how can we live in that kind of world? That's, this is the question. How can we live in that kind of world, touch it and hear it, having it pouring into our ears and exposed to our eyes day and night and not be conformed to its image and squeezed into its mold? The answer is... We must know the truth. We must know the world and life the way God sees it, the way it really is. We must know it so clearly and strongly that even while we're listening to these alluring lies, we can brand them as lies and know that they are wrong. But is that arrogance of the Christian and of the church to say, we know the truth? We have the truth. Is that an arrogant, arrogant statement in our day? Many would say so. But I would argue what is arrogant is to assume that we know what is best and know what is true apart from the one, the God, the creator who made all things and says in his word how things truly are. What I believe is actually arrogant is for us to say, no, 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 no. We get a claim on the truth. But Jesus comes along and says, may my, may my disciples be sanctified in the truth. Your word is truth. To be a Christian and to follow Jesus is to confess that he knows best and that he is the truth and we can know him in his word. Earlier this week, we had an elders uh, meeting and Paul, one of our elders, shared the devotional and it really uh, was impactful to me. Uh, what he had, how he delivered this devotional was um, he had spent the last year in a Bible reading plan working through the, the, whole, the entire Bible and just as a particular verse in the, in the daily reading would stand out anywhere in the word, he would highlight it. And so at the end of the year, he just started looking back at all these highlighted verses throughout the entire Bible that right, he had highlighted through the reading of the Bible this last year. And then what he did was he, he, wrote, he had written down a number of, of statements um, that he, he was finding difficult. So 
a challenge he was facing in life, personally or professionally, spiritually, a difficulty, a temptation, a doubt. And one at a time, he would, he would list that thing, whatever it was. I won't share them with you here, but he was vulnerable. He shared from his heart. He would list that challenge he was facing. And then he'd look through all his bookmarked verses, like hundreds of verses, and the ones that pertain to that particular challenge in his life right now, he just laid out verse after verse after verse after verse. So he would say the one challenge and then read verse after verse after verse after verse. And we would just hear the word of God flood into that situation. Then he'd say another difficulty in his life right now. Something else he's finding challenging or tempting. And just let the word of God, verse after verse after verse, speak to it. And I just like closed my eyes and just heard the word of God, the truth. Speak into those things. Clarify those things. Ah, that's it. I needed to be reminded of that over and over again. The word of God. Oh, it sanctifies us. God's way of sanctifying us is in the truth, the word of God. It's not this new and exciting or quicker method. It's an ordinary means. Get in the word. I mean, that is why we study the Bible so much here at Central. And sometimes I hear things pitted against each other like, man, you guys are really, like, you have so many Bible studies. You study the Bible so much. But what about social issues and, and getting out there and serving and all those kinds of things? And I, I never want to hear those pitted against each other. You know why? Because we're only sanctified and made of use by God in the world if we have his truth, know his truth, believe his truth, are living in and out and through this word of truth. And believe me, we will become helpful to our community as we live there, keep going back there, back there, back. We emphasize it because it's the only thing we've got that truly, Jesus tells us, sanctifies us and then makes us useful in the world. And that's his purpose. Third point, the purpose of sanctification. I'll give you the quick answer. It's mission. Why are disciples of Jesus sanctified? What is the reason for being set apart and growing in Christ's likeness? Well, let's look at verse 18 together. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, Jesus says. The disciples are to carry out a mission in the world that is nothing less than a continuation of Jesus' mission. Whoa. Like, Jesus' mission in the world was revolutionary. And, and, and what Jesus is saying here is, as you sent me, Father, I send them. I mean, Jesus says this in other places. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Why the Holy Spirit's power on us? So that we can be witnesses. Why his sanctifying work in our lives? So we can be witnesses. John 20, 21, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. For Jesus so loved the world that he sent the church. I mean, it's the continuation of the mission. Now, this is picking up where we left off last week. Christians typically take one of three different approaches to dealing with the difficulty of being in the world, but not of the world. Okay, we're supposed to be set apart, but, but what does that look like? Uh, Matt Carter and Josh Redberg did some helpful work on this uh, that I'm going to share. And I think they're Baptists because all three things start with the letter I. 
like good Baptist preachers do, and Eldon Fair. All right. Uh, so first, some practice isolation. Here's the first way that Christians approach being in the world but not of it. Uh, they, they approach it via isolation, believing the gospel needs to be protected instead of shared. Their legitimate desire to remain faithful to God's truth has caused them to disregard his mission. I mean, it's, to- it's genuine. Like, this is the gospel. It needs to be protected. We need to keep it. If, if, if it gets infiltrated by the world, it's going to get skewed. It's going to get misshapen. It's going to get perverted, right? And so we have to keep it in. And it keeps, it, it, it creates a disregard for mission. Given to truth without being given to the mission leads to isolation. We, we've seen this so much in the Christian church. I mean, monastic seclusion, right? Where monasteries exist for this reason. And I'm not saying that that's always a bad thing. Some of the greatest Christian writings have come from monastic um, uh, places and people who gave themselves to um, devoted time with God and we're grateful for that. But to live a general lifestyle as the church in the world in isolation, creating compounds and communes, or right, I won't even have somebody, uh, you know, do my yard who's not a fellow believer. Like every single thing in our life has to be believer, 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 believer. And it's, what all that's doing is creating isolation. And, and, and yes, there's the truth, but look, we're not living on mission one bit. That's isolation. Some practice inoculation believing the gospel has made them immune to temptation and worldliness. I see this all the time. Their legitimate desire to remain faithful to God's mission has caused them to disregard his truth. So convinced, so quickly, right out of the gates, we need to be in the world, we need to be mingling with non-believers so that they can believe, but, but so overemphasizing that, that the emphasis of the truth, the sanctifying work of being people of the book, of committed to study and knowing and prayer and Christian community is thrown out the window so much so that what the witness in the world looks like is like a bit of social conscience. Like, let's clean up our sidewalks a bit more. And, and we're out there, we're, we're rubbing shoulders and we're bringing the kingdom. No, We're not inoculated. Given to mission without being given to sanctification leads to inoculation. I talk about the pendulum swing a lot because we're just super good at this in the church. It's like, oh, we're we're so insulated and we're supposed to be on mission and then we go over to being inoculated and then we're like, oh, like, have you ever known every other generation, if you look at patterns of like family history and just in history, is like my generation, we're a lot more like our grandparents than our parents because we're like, my parents do this, so I'm going over here, right? And it's like over every other generation is just swinging and swinging. And so what we need to do, uh, helpful, um, helpful in our Christian maturing is often to say, okay, well, what's the true heart of God? What, 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 what is the word of God truly speaking into this? And of course, we're seeing the faults in isolation and inoculation. So where do we land? A perspective more in line with this prayer of Jesus and his other instructions such as the Great Commission, and we could go on and on, is insulation. Believing a daily focus on the gospel protects us from temptation as we seek to share the gospel with those who don't know Jesus. Every day, reminding ourselves of the gospel, living in the gospel, and recognizing the purpose for doing so is for our good and the good of others. 
living it out in the world. Insulation means working diligently to balance faithfulness to the truth and faithfulness to our mission. We're called to live differently than non-Christians, but not by removing ourselves from the world of non-Christians, but by living differently in the midst of an unbelieving world. So how are we set apart? God is sanctifying us in the midst of a broken world, but making us a special people that he wants to use for his purposes. Sanctification is God's way of setting us apart while not physically setting us apart from the rest of the world. Uh, Right now, the children are actually learning about the first martyr in Christian history, Stephen. You can read about it in Acts chapter 7. Right after that, in Acts chapter 8, because of the persecution of Christians, they spread out from Jerusalem. The apostles stay in Jerusalem, but the church at large um, spreads out. And it says in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So they're being persecuted and they're running, but they're not keeping their mouths shut about about the gospel because that's their very mission and purpose in the world. So as they go fleeing martyrdom and death, they actually are going proclaiming Christ. And that's how it was actually a means by which God used to spread the gospel message across the world. So we gather, this is where this pattern kind of comes from. We, we gather in community, it's critical, it's important. We study the word together, we look to Jesus, we worship together, we encourage one another. We need that in the Christian life, but that's not everything. We also scatter, taking the word with us, taking the sanctifying work he's doing in our lives and living it out in the world. See, our focus, Jesus is making it clear. He makes it clear so often in so many places. Our mandate, our mission is the gospel. But I think we, we, we seem to get confused about that a lot. So I'm going to wade now into the, um, a little bit of a gray zone where people will start to throw rocks at me perhaps. We're just going to wade in there because we have to think, th- be through, think through some of these things together as followers of Jesus. What does it look like to be Christians in the world? I think we get confused about that sometimes. I believe that sometimes in the church, we actually fall for the lie that some sort of social change, social reform is an ultimate win. If we can just get the society to adhere to more Christian values, that is success. The problem with that is the world doesn't simply need less sin, it needs more Jesus. The world doesn't simply need Christian values. It needs Christ. And law maybe can make us a little more safe, but it doesn't save. Only the gospel does. And so the trouble is that sometimes in the church what happens is we get so sold out on social reform that we sacrifice the gospel to do it. We're belligerent in the process. We actually smear the gospel, which is our purpose and our focus and why we exist so we can get some, yes, important, sure, yes, absolutely. But we sell the farm on something that's not our grand purpose. So look, in a perfect world, and actually this is something we should strive for consistently, is uphold the gospel. The gospel is our focus. The gospel is our mission in the world. But in a beautiful, compelling way, we can often bring about beautiful, we've seen it in history, beautiful social reform to societies that are so depraved. 
And that's a beautiful thing. We should want those things, but never sacrifice the gospel on the altar of a law. Because the law doesn't save, only the gospel does. Do you hear me? It's a tricky balance, it's complicated. But we are called to be a sanctified people in the world, set apart with a chief aim, gospel to the world. Now, there's a group that did this. Uh, it's about 300 years ago now that the Great Awakening began um, in Western Europe and in North America. The Great Awakening was just really revival um, in the Western world. And of course, that's a work of God that only God can truly do. But, but traced back, many, many trace the beginning of the Great Revival with a handful of men who met together in Oxford, England to form what they called the Holy Club. Now, to me, that sounds a bit pretentious, right? A group of British men, we are the Holy Club, and we're meeting in Oxford, right? So it's like, what? Who are you? What are you doing, right? It just sounds that way. But many trace it back. This was, these were the beginnings of the Great Awakening, revival in the Western world. What was this Holy Club all about? Well, I'll tell you what it wasn't about. They didn't meet together to plan and organize a system by which they could do mass evangelism. That wasn't why they gathered. Instead, they got together to get to know God, to become more holy. The holy club met together to get to know God more and to become holy men. Their one desire was to know God better and to be more like him. Their one aim was to be sanctified. To say, for my faith to count for anything, I must be a man who is growing in Christ-likeness. Not just picking up justification and saying, that's it but recognizing that true salvation is not only justification, but also sanctification. He does a work of growing us towards holiness. You're striving to be more like Jesus. Your commitment to the word and to prayer and to Christian community is not in vain. These are means by which God genuinely uses in your life to make you a more profoundly stunning witness in the world. Oh, to be made more like Jesus. The world will know us by our fruit, and we are to abide in him, and we will be a fruitful people. Look, the world observes Christians. I mean, everybody observes everybody. I love people watching. Ever been in an international airport and people watched or in like a big mall? It's like the greatest, the greatest thing, people watching. The world observes Christians. There's no doubt about that because the world's interested in our lives. And before they'll ever be interested in our message, they will be interested in our living. Do they actually live what they preach? Do they really believe it? Oh, how people watch our lives. And before they'll listen to a sermon, they'll watch our lives. Therefore, the first great step in evangelism is to start with ourselves, like the Holy Club, to start with the sanctification of me your own sanctification. Finally, the necessity of the cross for our sanctification. We see this in verse 19. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. 
Interestingly, when Jesus says, I consecrate myself, and then says that they may be sanctified, it's the exact same Greek word in the original, that I consecrate myself, I sanctify myself, that they may be sanctified. Same word. Now we have to use the two senses again, right? We have to use our Bible study hats here. And which sense does Jesus mean about himself? If he's consecrated, which is it? Is he supposed to become more Christ-like? Well, he's there. He's arrived. So it's not becoming more like Christ, but it's being set apart for a purpose of God. So Jesus is set apart for a purpose that they also may be sanctified in truth. There are two reasons why Jesus consecrated himself for us. Firstly, he set himself apart uh, to be an example to us. I mean, when you read about how Jesus interacted with sinners, if you read how Jesus um, in the Sermon on the Mount holds up the law, but then shines a bright light of the gospel on it, when you read about Jesus, like in Philippians 2, where it says that um, being the nature of God, he, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. Like we're just seeing Jesus model the Christian life for us. He, we, he's, the, he's the model. He's the example for us. And so Jesus consecrating himself, setting himself apart is of great service to us as we discover what sanctification looks like in our lives. But there's an even greater reason why Jesus consecrated himself. He set himself apart to die for us. Jesus, as our example alone, can't save us. We're still in need. Something still needs to, our, our sins still needs to be dealt with. But when Jesus consecrated himself unto death on a cross, paying the penalty for our sins, he consecrated himself in such a way that we actually could be saved, that we actually could be sanctified. He had to be our substitute. For Jesus to truly consecrate himself meant uh, to go to the cross, and this he willfully did for us. Earlier in John's gospel, John 10, 17, Jesus says, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I receive from my father. My father loves me because I lay my life down. I got a mission, a task from God. It's to lay my life down, but no one takes it from me. I'm not forced into it. I lay it down of my own accord and I take it back up again. Jesus consecrated himself so that we could be saved. Remember, I was talking about Exodus 40 and all these things in the tabernacle and then the, the temple that were consecrated. Jesus himself is the consecrated priest and also the consecrated sacrifice. Part of the consecration rituals in ancient Israel was that they would set aside a, a one-year-old lamb or goat without blemish, pure, spotless, and they would consecrate it. They would sacrifice it. Why? As a sin offering. And here comes Jesus, the night, the day he's betrayed, and says, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in truth. I mean, what Jesus is saying is I'm laying it all down for them that they could be saved. The death of Jesus on the cross is what makes our sanctification possible. It would be impossible for us to be sanctified without Jesus having sanctified himself for us. And listen, to tie this all in together, Jesus died on the cross not only to forgive us, but to fit us for the mission. 
I don't want to burden you down this morning. I don't want to weigh you down with any sort of guilt or, oh, now I have to read the Bible more. There is a beautiful means by which God is going to do a work in you to make you a phenomenal witness in the world. He wants to use you, every one of you. And he promises it. Jesus is praying, keep them from the evils in the world. Sanctify them into Christ-likeness and do it in the truth. A couple questions as we close. Will you give yourselves to the word for your sanctification? Give yourself to the word. It doesn't save you, but it's the means by which he sanctifies you. Will you give yourself to the word for your sanctification? And secondly, Will you give yourselves to living in the world as sanctified, sent ones? Oh, how he wants to use you. He's molding and shaping you into his image through the word, by his spirit, and he will use you for his glory. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your prayer. So clear. Thank you that we can not only come to you and pray to you, you pray for us. You prayed this prayer for your disciples. And as we'll see next week, you pray it for all who would believe after the point you prayed it. Thank you for praying for us. Thank you that we can come to you. Thank you that in your word, you promise that you will keep us. God, I pray that you would find us faithful. In a world, um, even in in, in a church culture where there's such cheap salvation of it doesn't cost you a thing, come to Jesus. He just wants to make your life a bit better. (laughs) Lord, we know that turning to you costs us everything, but it costs you far more. And in it costing us everything, you meet us in an immeasurably more beautiful way than we ever could have imagined. God, I pray that that we would not fall for a cheap grace that that takes the salvation card, the ticket to heaven card, and and, and doesn't strive to make our lives look different. Lord, I pray, I know that true salvation is one where you continue to work in us in order to work through us. Would you do that work in and among us and through us, I pray? Lord, I love that we get to gather. I find such joy in it, such encouragement in it. And now as we scatter... Would you use us as as your servants in the world for your grand purpose as gospel proclaimers? In Jesus' name, amen.